every single thing that has happened the last three years and beyond, you could even like apply all of vaccinology is based on the existence of these submicroscopic pathogenic particles. In virology, in their foundational papers, they don't have a clearly identified independent variable that they can then vary and manipulate to see if it produces the dependent variable, the observed phenomenon, the effect. They still have not shown that there is a virus present inside the fluids of a sick person, and we have the technology to do that. We know what the government's doing. We know what the World Economic Forum is doing. We know the reality that they're trying to create. We should probably be aware of it, but stop giving it our energy. Stop feeding into it. Stop believing that these other men and women who simply just call themselves government have any authority over us whatsoever because that's the only way they're able to continue and operate is because we buy into the illusion that they have legitimate authority over us. Be aware of what they're trying to do, but use our creative energy to create something that we want, the life we want, you know, become the co-creators that we are. Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Alec Zek. Alec is a speaker, a podcaster, a former army captain, and the founder of The Way Forward. I first came across Alec back in 2020 when everything was kicking off with COVID and there was a lot of debate going on about the origin of the virus, the severity of the virus, and also in Alex's case in particular, the nature of viruses in general. I had a few people ask me to raise this topic in my interview with Mark Changizi, and since then I have been keen to do an episode about terrain versus germ theory. So I'm glad to have done a full conversation on that topic specifically with Alec. This is definitely a new topic for me. I've started digging into this only very recently and I haven't really done too much homework. Alec does a very good job of explaining these ideas in a way that most people can understand. So it's definitely piqued my interest. And although I wouldn't say that I am in one camp or the other, I'm still kind of on the fence on this topic. I really appreciate Alec for coming on and sharing these ideas. What I'm really impressed by with Alec is that he's only been doing this since 2020. So he's relatively new to this topic, but you can tell that he's really, really gone deep on this and done his homework. And although he doesn't have a medical background specifically, I think he makes a very strong case why germ theory needs to be revisited. I also just appreciate his positive attitude in general and his focus on individual empowerment. If you like the episode, please give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, then welcome. Make sure you give the podcast a subscribe for future episodes. Please consider donating to the podcast. You can do this in three ways. The first is with a Bitcoin tip. That's both on-chain and via Lightning. You can also donate via Buy Me A Coffee. Links to those are both in the description. And the third way is by listening to this podcast on a podcasting 2.0 platform like Fountain. Fountain will allow you to load a wallet with Bitcoin and stream stats as you listen, which helps support the podcast and encourages me to keep putting out good quality conversations. Donations and stream stats are hugely appreciated and will go directly towards the cost of running the pod. One final thing, if you're about to listen to this episode on YouTube, I highly recommend that you check the description and click one of the links to a censorship-free platform. Since this episode is questioning science that YouTube deems unquestionable, unfortunately I've had to censor a lot of this conversation in order to put it on YouTube. So save yourself the annoyance now, go listen on a censorship-free platform, and ideally subscribe there and continue listening on those platforms as well. All right, on to the episode. Alec, welcome to the podcast. Uh, the reason I wanted to speak to you 
specifically is because first of all, you've been on my radar for quite a long time. Like we've been following each other on Twitter. I've been seeing the tweets you've been putting out certainly since uh, 2020. Uh, I didn't really know of you before then. So you've definitely kind of come uh, on my radar um, since then. I've got a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about. But the main reason uh, really that I kind of wanted to do this is I've had a couple of um, kind of tweets that I've put out saying, you know, do you want to ask questions? And people keep asking me about this idea of like terrain theory versus germ theory, are viruses real, et cetera. So yeah, yeah first of all, uh, welcome. Do you just want to give a, a little introduction as to yourself and then we'll go into a few of these topics? Yeah. Um, name's Alec Zek. I'm a uh, former army captain, West Point grad, uh, got out of the army in April of 2021. And I'm a dad, a husband, and a podcaster, and I guess you could say holistic health and consciousness and freedom educator. So, yeah. Or David Avocado Wolf would say I'm a professional tweeter. So that's that's what I do. Professionally tweet. That's the second time I've heard that name. In I heard it, I literally heard that just yesterday for the first time. I don't know who it, who it is though, but I, someone told me about it at the the Great Reset. Someone mentioned this name. Who is that? Yeah, David Avocado Wolf is, uh, he's one of the most well-known, I guess you could say, influencers or educators on superfoods. He's been doing this for a long time. So he wrote a book in 2009 on superfoods specifically, and he's just knowledgeable about so many things, just the, the nature of this realm, um, you infectious or so-called infectious diseases, superfoods, nutrition, detoxification, He's just a all around really knowledgeable dude. Been doing it for a while. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've got to check this person out. Yeah, because there's a few names that were mentioned at that event, and uh, I'm now kind of reading up on them. So yeah, that's another one I've got to look into. Um, by the way, you, great speech at the at the event, the Great Reset. Is that the first time um, doing a doing a, a talk at that event? Uh, first time doing a talk at that event. Yeah, um, but I've given that specific talk, I think, ten times now six in person and four on podcasts or just like presentations on video. So, um, it was an awesome event that the greater reset was, uh, what I loved about it is it's leading people to solutions. And I think that's important yes. right now. I'm, I'm sort of getting sick of the rallying and against the system and highlighting the corruption within the system, which I do think is still important, right. To, to educate people on that, but it's more focused on, um, and I'm more focused on solutions, uh, whether that's individual solutions in terms of a shift in consciousness or a paradigm shift within yourself or actual physical solutions that you can uh, implement in your life to help ensure that you lead a loving life. I don't even want to say so you can combat what's going on, it's just so you can create the reality that you want. So. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I want to get on towards the end onto the kind of more solution-based stuff. Now, I know you've told this story quite a few times i've kind of you know done a lot of listening to other podcasts to, to catch up in your story uh, so i'm sure you've told it a few times but do you mind kind of just giving it a little bit of a summary for my listeners about how you kind of got into this world of you know holistic health and talking about you know real ways to improve your health and terrain theory and all the all the rest of it because i know that you know this is all uh intertwined with your mum's story who is also kind of big in the space so do you mind just giving that that story uh kind of uh, your background for my listeners? Yeah. It was funny because when you asked or when you when you let me know that like you hadn't heard of me before 2020, I'm like, yeah, because I hadn't really said anything before 2020. <laughs> so that, that's the reason why. But um I 
I always preface this by saying I don't want any empathy or sympathy from anyone. I have healed so much of this stuff, so I'm not. Uh, this is just for clarification on in context on where I'm coming from. I grew up in a pretty chaotic and abusive environment. My mom was very codependent, more focused on trying to fix my dad, and uh, th- than she was um, at uh, at raising myself and my siblings. So there's a lot of neglect coming from her and from my dad. He was very emotionally unavailable, uh, had a lot of toxic shame just because of the way that he was raised and was repeating those generational patterns. So he was very physically and verbally and emotionally abusive. And my mom was pretty emotionally abusive and manipulative too when I was growing up. And um, just because of the nature of their traumatic relationship, my dad went to rehab for several reasons. And then my mom went to go see a psychiatrist And the psychiatrist didn't ask her about any of the trauma that she had experienced, didn't talk to her about nutrition or mindfulness or trauma healing techniques or anything like that. It was a simple, you know, questionnaire. And then she was prescribed multiple benzodiazepines and SSRIs. And over the course of the next 10 years or so, that was in 2006 or seven, over the course of the next 10 years, her health continued to spiral downward and she was trying multiple different drugs. Anytime she would experience an up moment, we were like, oh my God, the drugs are working. And then when she would experience her down moments, and in the down moments, I mean, she was hallucinating in and out of psych hospitals, multiple suicide attempts, not leaving her room for weeks at a time, sort of just sitting in the, in the, in the bathroom in front of the mirror in a state of psychosis and like picking her skin. I remember seeing that all the time. And we were like, oh my God, the drugs aren't working. And she would try various somewhat seemingly holistic and natural approaches like she would do the psych drugs but also try to implement wheatgrass and like that didn't really work and then her and my dad went vegan for a little bit that didn't really do anything and she's still on these psych drugs and her health just continued to decline meanwhile for me i uh obviously had a tremendous amount of trauma and everything like that and i learned to externalize my self-worth because i didn't feel worthy myself so i just uh Try, sort of put on a facade and pretended to be someone and wanted to have all the coolest clothes. And like, even you could even say me going to West Point, that was the only school that recruited me to play basketball. That was a division one school. So that's why I went there because I was recruited to play basketball and I ended up getting cut from the basketball team um, for several reasons. And, you know, even that experience though, I went to West Point because I wanted to seem cool. I wanted to seem popular. I wanted to seem like I was successful it wasn't because I authentically wanted to go there. Now in hindsight, I'm happy that I did for, for several reasons, which we can get into. But by the time I was a senior at West Point, my mom, we were looking at putting her in a long-term facility because of just the, the nature of that up, down, up, down, and, and the downs kept becoming more frequent. And it, it sort of got to the point where myself, my siblings, and my dad, they were still married at the time. We were like, we just cannot do this anymore. She's either going to succeed in committing suicide or at the least, we're never going to have Ali Zek back because of you know, the, the state of her health. And by chance, she was seeing a therapist who was reading a book that had just come out called A Mind of Your Own by Dr. Kelly Brogan. And this therapist said, Ali, you know, you've tried all these different things. You might as well try to make an appointment with Kelly. She has a completely unconventional approach that you've never tried before that doesn't involve any pharmaceuticals. So unfortunately, my mom tried to taper or tried to cold turkey off some of her drugs herself because she did realize it was the drugs. And that 
made her symptoms way worse. So I definitely recommend against cold turkeying off any benzodiazepines or SSRIs for anyone that listens to this that's on them. But luckily she made an appointment to go see Kelly who had a uh, practice in New York at the time. And I was graduating from West Point, which is in New York. And Kelly essentially changed the entire trajectory of my family because she, you know, through her holistic, unconventional, pseudoscientific slash quackery holistic approach to health, completely reversed all these issues that my mom was dealing with. And for the first time ever, my mom was having to sort of face her emotions and face these things and understand that nutrition and eating organic isn't just about uh, sustenance. It's about providing actual medicine for your body and helping you heal and just a completely different approach to health. And so seeing her drastically heal, my wife, who I had just gotten married to in June of 2016, we then attempted the same approach with her. And she was diagnosed nine years prior with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, was under the care of multiple rheumatologists, was chronically ill, was told that she'd always be this way. We even talked about not being able to have kids and that she was going to die before me. She might end up in a wheelchair because of her chronic inflammation. And then we decided to do the same approach with her, tapering her off of her uh, immunosuppressive drugs and other medications that she was on and just adopting a holistic approach to health. And she reversed both of her autoimmune conditions that she had dealt with for over nine years in a matter of three months and had blood work to prove that she had reversed those two things. So after seeing those two experiences, as you can imagine, that sent me down a never ending journey of questioning, like, how did these experts have this wrong? And how is it that these people are Dr. Kelly Brogan and others who I are, are being called pseudoscientific quacks and that they spread it misinformation by the mainstream? How is it that they got it right? How is it this simple just, just to eat well, you know, become more mindful and reconnect with nature and spend more time outside. That's the, that's how we be like become healthy. And so that sent me down a never ending journey of questioning everything that I had been taught, which inevitably led to questioning government corruption. And I had just commissioned as an officer in the U S army had to serve a minimum of five years. So as you could imagine, that was like, Oh my God, like, what did I just get myself into without realizing it? And luckily I'm out now, but, um, and then when all this, nonsense happened with COVID, I had already done my research to a certain extent to understand exactly what they were going to do. And I knew it right from the get-go. And then in May of 2020, I decided I couldn't be quiet anymore. And I just started started using my social media, which I had previously just posted like pictures of me and pictures of my family, my son or me snowboarding or playing handball or something like that. And now I was using it to to educate people on all that I had learned. So... Yeah, that's that's how I'm where I am now. Okay, so it sounds like that initial kind of ex- exposure to you know holistic health and everything sounds like it was to do with essentially like psychological, uh, you know, curing psychological uh, issues and disorders, etc. So how did you kind of go from that to talking about germ and, and terrain theory and you know the kind of ideas behind viruses themselves? Yeah, so. First off, the the healing that happened with my mom was definitely more psychological, but my wife's was more physical because it was lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So ah, okay. she was chronically ill physically. And so after right. seeing it, you know, my mom begin to heal mentally and then my wife drastically heal physically, you know, then we came to discover some of the symptoms 
I won't say started to return necessarily, but did start to return if she was suppressing her emotions. And as she started to heal her emotions, those symptoms have been subsided again. So it's all connected. But the point is, um, in, in 2020, I had never done any research into the nature of viruses. It was really only deep research on vaccinology. And I knew that all vaccines were bad. We had already had a son that was completely unvaccinated and completely healthy. Um, and so I'd already done my research on that front, but I saw a video in April or March of 2020. I saw two videos. One was David Icke being interviewed on London Real talking about this doctor by the name of Dr. Andy Kaufman, how there is no proof of the virus. And I was like, that's really interesting. And then I saw another interview of Dr. Tom Cowan talking about uh, using an analogy following a pot of dolphins off the coast of Florida. And if you follow those pot of dolphins and they begin to get sick, you wouldn't say what virus caused them to be sick. Your first inclination would be who put something in that water that caused those dolphins to die. And I was like, wow, why don't we apply the same to human health? And then at the same time, I was still in the army and we were living on uh, on the military base that I was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma at the time. And Military housing is notorious, at least in the uh, the U.S. military, for having horrible, just toxic issues. And without going off on a tangent of the nature of how mold works, because I've explored that as well, um, mold, the house we were living in uh, had insane amounts of black mold, which is an indication that the environment itself is already toxic, which is why the mold proliferates. But But the point is, we were living in a very, very toxic environment. I mean, this these houses that we were living in had um, had encased lead paint that you had to sign a waiver that you acknowledged that you were being you could possibly be exposed to small amounts of lead paint that were encased, as you know that's what they said at least. And my wife's symptoms started returning, and we were trying to figure out what the heck was going on because they hadn't this hadn't happened in nearly you know three years at this point, four years at this point. And then we determined it was because of the environment we were living in. So all this sort of led me to, to realize both my personal experience and also being exposed to these interviews that like there might be something to this terrain thing. And my idea of terrain theory prior to this, I'd been exposed to it a little bit, is just that as long as you remain healthy, viruses won't cause you too many issues. And that as long as you remain healthy, bacteria won't cause you too many issues. But the, the understanding that I've come to now is that there is actually no proof whatsoever that viruses cause issues or that they even exist in the way that um, modern virology and the overwhelming majority of experts and just normal people alike think that they do. And that bacteria is in no way pathogenic. Bacteria is akin to firefighters at the scene of a fire. And we can get into, uh, I guess you could say my specialty, which is virology this will be the third conversation I've had about today. So it's very fresh on my mind. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. You've, you've set that up very nicely because that was the, the next thing I want to go into uh, is, you know, for people who haven't heard it before. I mean, first of all, I would just say this, you know, your talk at the, the Greater Reset was very, very kind of succinct in going into some of these things. So I think that that is actually a very good primer for people who haven't heard um, any of the, these ideas before. Um, but, you know, Obviously, for the people listening just now, you've just kind of piqued their interest with that. Do you want to just give a bit of a rundown on um, how you view viruses, their existence, and the kind of evidence kind of 
that you see against there being the existence of, of viruses. Just just uh, you can try to summarize it summarize it here for us. But obviously, it's a big topic, so um, you know I understand that it, we could be here for hours. But just um, no, it's all good. Yeah, I, I have I have at least an hour left, so I, I'm good. So I can go into <laughs> as much detail as you want me to. So I um, have done this a few ways where I've started from the bottom up, like going into the intricate details of virology. And then I've also done it the opposite way, going more high level of what makes us ill and what makes us well and the nature of contagion or two or more people getting sick. So I think with this one, I, I'd like to start from the, the the top down approach. So the the idea that disease is passed via the fluids of a sick person is itself completely unfounded. And in my presentation, uh, I highlighted several studies that have been done attempting to prove that disease is passed via the fluids of a sick person. And in every case where they expose someone who is sick to someone who is healthy, sometimes taking mucus from that sick person and injecting it or swabbing it in the back of the throat of a healthy person or taking blood from a sick person, injecting, injecting into a healthy person or um, having a sick person talk at close range and shake hands with a healthy person. And I'm talking about in several control experiments. One that is pretty well known is the Rosenau experiments during the Spanish flu, during the height of the Spanish flu that were conducted on two different quarantine stations, Angel Island and I think the other quarantine station was in Boston. And they exposed 100 healthy hosts to various uh, methods of what would be considered natural and unnatural modes of transmission from sick people. Uh, and in that experiment, what of, of 100 people, zero of them became ill. Zero people in that experiment with 100 people being exposed via various methods to the fluids of a sick person and directly just two sick people, zero of them became ill. And the guy conducting the experiment was perplexed and he was quoted as saying something to the effect of, we thought we understood the nature of this disease and we thought that it was passed from person to person. And if we have established anything here, it's that we know absolutely nothing about the nature of this disease. And of course, the Spanish flu is said to be one of the most deadly pandemics ever. And of course, people died, but we're talking, trying to ascertain what was the cause of people dying in this case. And that experiment and then several others have ruled out that it was caused by uh, transmission from the fluids of a sick person. And then there are some studies that claim to have proved pathogenicity of various mucus secretions or bacteria. But the problem with these studies is they'll take uh, a lab rat that was raised in an environment that is unnatural for rats to be living in, eating a diet that's completely unnatural for rats, being exposed to various uh, stimuli that it puts them in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety. And then they'll take mucus secretions from a sick patient and pump the rat via injection or like swab uh, insane amounts of it down the back of a rat's throat and the rat experiences symptoms. And they say that that's proof of pathogenicity, which is just nonsense because below the surface on this, now going to the more intricate details, um, you know, I, I always use this analogy from Dr. Cowan's book, The Contagion Myth, and this is my own variation of it. If I were to tell you that a ping pong ball could destroy a brick wall, you know, logically speaking, you'd, you'd want to see proof that 
a ping pong ball could break down a brick wall, right? So if I took uh, a corrosive acid and poured it on the brick wall and then took a giant mallet and smashed the brick wall several times and then took a ping pong ball and taped it to a giant boulder and hurled it at the brick wall and then the uh, brick wall fell down, have I proven that the ping pong ball caused the destruction of that brick wall? Of course not. Like any logically speaking person would say, absolutely not. The the ping pong ball had little to no effect on that brick wall. And it was all these other things. And so when we say that SARS-CoV-2 or really insert any other virus has not been isolated or proven to exist or proven to cause disease, what we mean by that is if you take any of the hundreds of thousands of isolation papers for various viruses and look at the methods section of that paper, the steps that they follow are essentially uh, the following, where they take fluids from a sick person, they assume that there is a virus present in those fluids. So they already have an assumption. They assume that there's a virus present in those fluids. They then add those fluids to a for, or to viral transport medium first, which is used to transport the virus prior to being introduced to these various experiments. And inside viral transport medium is at the least gentamicin, which is a cytotoxic antibiotic and amphotericin B, which is a cytotoxic antimycotic. And then they take that mixture and sometimes they'll purify it. Sometimes they'll centrifuge it, but they rarely, if ever, do both uh, purification and uh, centrifugation or sorry, filtration and centrifugation. So it's an unpurified fluids. And then they add that fluid to a foreign cell culture, which is either a Vero E6 or Vero CCL81, which are adult green monkey kidney cells. Um, and I'll get to the significance of that in just a minute. And then they also add more gentamicin, more amphotericin B, penicillin streptomycin, Dilbeco's minimal essential medium or Dilbeco's modified eagle medium, fetal bovine serum, trypsin, or any one or more of those ingredients that I just named. The cell then experiences what is called a cytopathic effect, which is essentially the cell breaking down to a bunch of fragments. They then take those fragments, prepare it for electron microscopy, which involves several steps that are that, that they assume are not are altering the morphological appearance of the genetic material that's present, including you know dehydrating or rehydrating, heating or freezing, staining, and then bombarding it with electron beams. And I'm sure if I were to take you and your natural state, Johnny, and do the same to you, you probably wouldn't look like you did before. And then they take these electron micrograph images after they do the electron microscopy, and then they point to the particles in those images and say, ah, those are viruses. This must have been what was inside the fluids of a sick person. This must be what caused this person to be sick. This must be what caused the breakdown of the cell. It wasn't any of the other things that were introduced to this foreign cell culture. It had to have been this. This is our new pathogenic disease causing agent and we could go various routes on that. I'll let you ask what you want to ask. Yeah, okay. I've got a few things noted down here. So first of all, you know, we do see these uh, these images of people saying, oh, well, there you go. There's the virus. You know, we have it. We have it yeah. captured. So in your view, what is the thing which they're pointing to and saying this is the virus? What do you believe that to be? Yeah, and in, in my presentation, I highlight a number of studies that have been done 
where they have identified, and this is a quote from one of the studies, morphologically indistinguishable, end quote, particles, essentially, they they say inclusions in podocytes, but the point is morphologically indistinguishable particles in patients prior to the COVID-19 era and in patients who are negative for COVID-19 during the COVID era that are indistinguishable from SARS-CoV-2. And there are several other studies where they have taken electron micrograph images and pointed to particles, and they ended up not being viral at all. They were actually multivesicular bodies or exosomes or extracellular vesicles or any other uh, things that I like to call just like cellular debris. They're Essentially, they're pointing to these particles that are just cellular debris and asserting that they are virus particles and asserting that they were what was inside the fluids of a sick person that they assumed was there and that they are assuming that that must have been what caused that individual to be sick. It's literally just cellular debris. And I don't even know if I can, I think it's cellular debris. I'll say that. And at the least, we know that the 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 process for preparation for electron microscopy produces an unknown number of what are called artifacts, which are essentially um, uh, the resultant particles could be just a product of the preparation process itself. We don't know that that's what it actually looks like in its natural state. And this is a big one. This also applies to using electron microscopy to try to figure out what's contained within a human cell. We we don't know that what's contained within a human cell, uh, aside from a few of the the uh, well known um, features of a cell like uh, mitochondria and the nucleus. Aside from that, though, these other elements of a cell, we don't know for sure if they're not just the uh, the results of the preparation process for electron microscopy. But that's that's another a whole another topic. Okay, yeah. So it sounds like you know cellular debris. You know, it's not kind of a specific thing. I guess, you know, you're open to saying, well, we don't necessarily exactly know we what it is, know. but the proof yeah. the proof of it being a virus specifically it isn't there. And that's where you have to be careful to not make assertive claims. Like, because I, mm-hmm. first off, have never done these experiments myself. And of course, people use that as an argument to say, then you can't comment on it, which is ridiculous because I'm able to read scientific papers and anyone can uh, become educated enough to read scientific papers. But I want to be very careful not to make assertive claims on what something is or is not having falsified their so-called evidence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would suggest as well, this is another thing that I got from your presentation at the Greater Reset was there are these side-by-side images of what we're told is, I think it's, I'm not sure if it was just the COVID one or maybe it was various viruses and then they were side-by-side with another, yeah. And it was side-by-side with another image of something which we know not to be a virus and they looked essentially identical. You know, they were very, very similar. Uh, that, that image was, yeah, that when I saw that image, that really, really piqued my interest about this topic. You know, I mean, I'm kind of new to it, but that was one of those kind of not. I don't want to say mic drop moment because it wasn't. It wasn't uh, an audio moment. It was just like a visual image that I was like, "Wow, that's powerful." You know. Yep. The other thing that you mentioned in your talk, which I found interesting, was about the the definition of isolation and how that's kind of been misappropriated. Do you mind kind of reiterating that point here? Yeah. So the the definition, if I can recall from memory of isolation from Webster's Dictionary that virtually the entire human population knows isolation to mean is to separate uh, uh, from other substances so as to obtain in a pure or free state. So essentially meaning taking one thing and having it completely by itself. And ironically, what virologists do in their, quote, isolation of any, insert any virus is the exact opposite of that. 
they take what they assume contains the thing that they're, quote, trying to isolate, and then they add a bunch of other confounding variables to it onto a mixture. It breaks down to a bunch of fragments, and then they point to the fragments and say that that must have been the thing that was inside the fluids of a sick person. There's a really big point to be made here, too. And I said I would circle back to this regarding the monkey kidney cell that is used. And so amphotericin B, uh, anyone can Google this or DuckDuckGo this themselves, type in keywords amphotericin B toxic kidneys. And you'll find a number of results talking about how amphotericin B is known to be cytotoxic to kidneys and has known to be uh, to cause renal failure, which is kidney failure. And again, they're adding this mixture of or th- this snot from a sick person to a viral transport medium, which contains amphotericin B. Then they're then adding that substance, that mixture, to a foreign cell culture, which is a monkey kidney cell, and adding more amphotericin B to the culture as well. And then the assumption here is that amphotericin B is present simply to prevent the proliferation of fungi within the culture and also within the, the viral transport medium. But they're also assuming that it has no negative impact on the culture itself. And there's actually a study that I found recently, both on amphotericin B, because this same sentiment can uh, be applied to gentamicin at the least as well. There's two studies that I've found that I highlighted during my presentation that talk about how both of those substances are known to be cytotoxic to cells and to cell cultures. And again, the, the emphasis here is that they're using a monkey kidney cell and these substances are cytotoxic to kidneys specifically, and they're assuming that they that these substances have no negative impact on the culture. Okay, so to kind of distill that down then, I guess it, the what you're essentially saying is that there hasn't been a study done which doesn't use some kind of toxin which we expect to have some effect on the cell, right? So it's almost like every way of trying to uh, prove that there is an existence of virus actually uses a technique within it which is going to affect the cells in such a way that you know this kind of cell debris or some kind of you know um, adverse adverse effects to the experiment are going to be experienced. Exactly, and I've had people say, "Aha!" Like try to pull a gotcha on me and send me a study where like they didn't use gentamicin and amphotericin B here. All they used is a food source for the cell, fetal bovine serum and Dilbeco's minimal central medium. So gotcha. But then you read the study and you look back and they say that a, a, a sample of sputum was collected from a patient and added to viral transport medium. And then you look up the ingredients for viral transport medium and it's gentamicin and amphotericin B. But even regardless of that, they're assuming that there's a virus present inside those fluids. And then they add those fluids to a foreign cell culture alongside other substances, maybe sometimes alongside what they say is no substances. And Regardless of all of that, they still have not shown that there is a virus present inside the fluids of a sick person. And we have the technology to do that. Okay. But Alec, what about the whole fact that we we see people, you know, we see people getting sick and then, you know, other people in the household will get sick or people at their work, you know, their workplace will get sick. How do you explain that if contagion, uh, you know, viral contagion is not a thing? Yeah. So again, bringing into context the thing that I shared at the beginning where they've attempted to prove that diseases pass be the fluids of a sick person, but I don't want to be the one to deny anyone's experience. And of course, I have two kids and anyone who has kids knows that there seems to be something, 
you know, past, but that again is an idea that has been impressed upon us for so long has been just sort of beat into our heads that disease is past. But nonetheless, there appears to be some sort of phenomenon where like my son will get sick and then my daughter will get sick. Maybe they're eating completely separate diets or my son will spend a day with his cousins, not eating the same thing as them. They all start to get sick and then my son gets sick. I think in most of these cases, they can be attributed to sim- uh, exposure to similar toxins, similar eating habits, similar uh, suppressed emotional issues, similar exposure to non-native EMF. And then a, a big piece of this that I've been really sounding the alarm on for a while now, really since the study came out, in July of 2021, the CDC published a study set out to determine the strongest risk factors for death associated with COVID. And number one was obesity, which was no surprise. But the second strongest risk factor for death associated with COVID was fear slash anxiety related disorders, which is really significant because that means those are people who had already had a diagnosed fear slash anxiety related disorder, not accounting for the people who are just simply in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety. That was the second strongest risk factor for death associated with COVID. So it's also could be perpetual fear. Um, in, in conditioned beliefs surrounding like, oh, they're sick. I'm probably going to get sick too. But of course, that can't describe this phenomenon in every single case. And I, I, I want to be clear here too, that I'm not making any assertive claim to know what is the cause of this phenomenon. Again, in falsifying the so-called evidence of virology, I'm not required to make or to come up with a better explanation, but I also understand pragmatically the need to do so because everyone asks, well, if it's not a virus, then what's causing me to be sick? I had a reel that went pretty viral talking about all of the things that are making us sick. But even aside from that, there are some other things that we haven't studied uh, or at least not studied well enough because we've been so myopically focused on this idea of these sub-microscopic particles that are passed from person to person. And those are, you know, mere neurons, pheromones, some interplay between those two things, bioresonance, the interplay between all those three things at once, also accounting for all the things that I mentioned before, the fear, exposure, similar toxins. There's so many things at play. And these other things simply just have not been explored enough. There's limited studies that have been done um, indicating that trees may not only communicate via the mycelium network, but also via pheromones. Um, and, and of course, when women are around each other for extended periods of time, they sync up on their menstrual cycle. I would argue that that's not caused by a pathogenic virus. Um, or if I'm around you, Johnny, and you yawn, and then I yawn, I would argue that's not caused by a pathogenic virus. Uh, or maybe if I'm in a really, really shitty mood and you're around me and you're in an amazing mood, you help uplift my mood. I would argue that's not caused by a pathogenic virus. So there's so many other phenomenon, phenomena at play that we just haven't explored thoroughly enough that could sort of um, contextualize what's going on with this phenomenon of two or more people getting sick in the same space. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the yawning thing. I hadn't actually um, thought of that one as, as a parallel, but I've heard theories that the reason that we sync up yawning is because if you're in a low oxygen environment and you yawn, it's a way of getting excess oxygen into your lungs. So if you see someone else yawning, it's an indication you're in a low oxygen environment. So then you should yawn as well because it's like, oh, well, I need to get oxygen into my lungs as well. We might be in a low oxygen environment. So I've heard that as a theory that maybe it goes back to, you know, if humans were living in caves or something and you're in a low oxygen place, that it makes sense to take that visual cue. But actually, this brings me nicely onto something else as well, which is, you know, essentially, you know, you mentioned there that with fear, you know, fear being one of the the key factors, like even, 
even the CDC uh, are admitting that, you know, fear and anxiety is one of the biggest uh, risk factors for COVID, which is that, you know, my my theory with, with the whole COVID thing, you know, obviously, I mean, up until now and up until kind of, you know, being exposed to kind of your work and some of the things you're talking about, I was quite convinced that there, there, there was at least a virus. But taking that aside, whether there is or isn't a virus, it seems to me like pumping out all of this kind of fear 24-7 in the news and saying to everyone, hey, look, everyone should be scared. Everyone's dropping dead. You know, you see these videos in China of people, you know, falling over on the street, which obviously are ridiculous in retrospect. But we saw this continuously every day. There's a big, you know, red number on the screen saying this many people have died. And the idea that we would see all this and that we wouldn't have some kind of increased level of general illness in society. I mean, it seems obvious to me that people would see that and say, okay, well, my immune, because of this fear, my immune system is kind of, uh, you know, lessened, like the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's kind of less, uh, it's impacted. Your immune system yeah. is kind of depreciated. Negatively, impa- negatively impacts yeah. you without yeah. question. Because, because, yeah. because of all that fear, right? So yeah. do you think that, you know, with the whole kind of COVID phenomenon, how do you kind of position that in relation to all of this, uh, these other ideas about viruses and, and kind of germ versus terrain theory, et cetera? Like how, how do you view, view COVID-19 in that context? I, of course, think that there is no proof that this was caused by a virus. There's no proof for the existence of a virus. And I would say the impact of fear and anxiety is severely uh, misrepresented and discounted in terms of this phenomenon of people getting sick in the same space. And I think at the very tippy top, they're aware of that, which is why they continued to push fear and anxiety and put us in a perpetual state of fear. And this is actually the the best way I've found or one of the best ways that I've found to help uh, wake up the people who are just blindly accepting of the narrative is show them that CDC study and then sort of just ask a question. Why is it that they've seemed to keep us in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety given their own studies are indicating that fear and anxiety is one of the strongest risk factors for death? And of course, no one can answer that logically because there is no logical answer except for they know exactly what they're doing or at the very least, their 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 measures are severely, <laughs> uh, severely harmful and they've, they're just missing how harmful it is. But um, to contextualize this phenomenon with uh, with the no virus position, I think that, you know, COVID-19 implies that it was caused by a pathogenic virus. It actually doesn't imply that that's the definition, that you tested positive for a a virus known as SARS-CoV-2 and there's no proof of its existence. But again, these symptoms, I don't want to deny that people are experiencing symptoms of illness because they are, but even if you look at the official symptom list of COVID-19 from the CDC, which I have in front of me now, fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, muscle or body aches, headache, new loss of taste or smell, sore throat, congestion, runny nose, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Those are all symptoms that we've experienced before without question. Um, they're, they're, they're not new. And to, to say that this is a new disease is, I think, a little bit misleading because there is nothing about these symptoms that are new whatsoever. These are all symptoms that we've experienced before. And a lot of people will push back and say, yeah, but the prevalence of loss of taste or smell or the prolonged loss of taste and smell is a new phenomenon. But again, that could also be a a mental construct where we're believing that to be true 
Because I know people who have gone through somatic healing processes after experiencing loss of taste and smell and regain their loss of taste and smell. And then there's also zinc deficiency that plays into that. We also have a relatively new or um, a higher prevalence of a technology, millimeter wave technology. And I'm not one of those people that says, oh, it's all caused by 5G, but it is a, a new technology that has been rolled out in the past few years. And there's several studies indicating that prolonged exposure to non-native EMFs um, causes your body to experience loss of taste and smell. And then, of course, had you looked up loss of taste and smell common cold prior to COVID, you would find that one out of three people experienced loss of taste and smell prior to the COVID-19 era when just experiencing a common cold. So there's nothing about these symptoms that are new. Alec, that triggered me so much this whole thing about the loss of taste and smell everyone talking about this as if it's a new thing i was like has everyone just got collective amnesia about like you know having flu in the past i mean i i had flu i remember i had flu on my um i think it was my 18th birthday it was like one you know we went out and we were having a a meal at that point we went to like a, we were having um you know like sushi and stuff i wasn't vegan at that point so we were kind of just eating all of this like you know fish and stuff and i remember I went out for this for this meal and I, I had the flu. This was when you actually just got over it. If you're a bit ill, you you know, you didn't just stay at home and, you know, like hide behind the couch for <laughs> for three weeks. But I went out and I couldn't taste a thing. I, I got to the end of the meal and it was quite an expensive meal. You know, it was like a, a special occasion. I got to the end of it and uh, you know, my parents were like, oh, you know, how was the meal? I was like, I-, I couldn't taste a single thing. I couldn't tell you what I was eating. If you'd have blindfolded me, I would have had no idea. And that was just such a common thing, you know, like people uh, who had flu lost their sense of taste and smell. And then all of a sudden COVID came around and it was like, oh, what a marvel of science. We've discovered that you lose your <laughs> sense of taste and smell from this thing. I'm like, this is nothing new. I mean, it was just bizarre that, you know, that they tried to put this into the world as if it was a, a new idea. Yeah. 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 And again, there's, there's nothing new about any of it. And that will trigger some people and they'll say, well, I tested positive after experiencing that. I'm like, tested positive for what? And they'll say SARS-CoV-2. And the thing about PCR, and I'll use an analogy, if I were, or this, this applies not only to the PCR so-called test, but this applies to any of the other tests as well. If I were to attempt to develop a new pregnancy test, I can test it on you know, 50 women who are clearly not pregnant that they validate they're not pregnant via multiple other known methods that are have a certain level of accuracy and then have 50 very clearly, you know, nine month pregnant women in front of me and test my new pregnancy test on them. And it'll give me a certain error rate that I can base off of the the very clear visible signs that they are pregnant or not pregnant. When it comes to the the use of this test, what are they testing it against? They'll say that they're testing it against assays for known, known fragments of, of RNA f- coming from SARS-CoV-2, but that's, that's another red herring because th- the test should be associated with the prevalence of symptoms because that's an indicated indication that, quote, you're infected with the virus. And people who are uh, positive that have no symptoms at all, like the, the quote, false positives that are prevalent amongst society is rampant. But even saying false positives is, is a misleading statement because the, the results are scientifically meaningless. There's no false positives. It's just false results, period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was good. I, I, um, it's almost like another, another level down the rabbit hole, right? Like while everyone's talking about how many false positives and it's not in the other, you know, you always kind of like have to zoom out from that as well and say like, does this, is this meaningful at all? Or is this all kind of, uh, you know, pseudoscience? Uh, yeah, I guess that will be, you know, my next question is like, 
how could an industry, you know, I, I guess that if you were to, to expose someone to these ideas, who's, you know, not really down the conspiracy rabbit hole or anything at all, and doesn't have much skepticism towards society generally, how do you explain the fact that, you know, basically every medical um, professional in the world, you know, aside from a, a few kind of um, people on the fringes, believe this stuff? Like, how could how could a lie perpetuate uh, for so long? And, you know, are there any other parallels, I guess, in kind of medical science of other things which perpetuated for a long time? And then we discovered, ah, yes, everyone was was wrong about this thing. Oh, I mean, there are countless examples. You could talk about the use of thimerosal in vaccines, which the CDC now has admitted is harmful and they don't use thimerosal in vaccines anymore. You could talk about the use of DDT. So many different flip-flops on nutrition coming from the FDA and the USDA. There's there's so many examples. But how could so many people be, quote, in on it? That's the thing is that there aren't so many people in on it. Anyone who is simply propagating the prevailing narrative is in on it without realizing that they're in on it because they believe in it. And this has been a long time coming with the establishment of Rockefeller Medicine in the Flexner Report that sort of said any alternative or holistic approaches to health are pseudoscience and quackery. The only true health is the pharmaceutical, which is uh, the the oil-based um uh, approach to health and, and healing people from disease, which is now the prevailing way that we approach health in Western societies and really in the whole world at this point. And to s- sort of contextualize this from the conflicts of interest, let's say with Pfizer, um, actually, before I get to that, let me let me talk specifically to vir- virology and viruses. So this method of, quote, isolating viruses came into being being in the 1950s with the, quote, discovery of the measles virus. And if you look at that paper, John Franklin Enders, who is credited with discovering the measles virus for which he won a Nobel Prize for, the whole paper is riddled with assumptions. And the process to, quote, isolate measles involves even more confounding variables than what modern virology uses. And again, this is the first experiment, first time that they tried to, quote, isolate a virus because they, this sort of, thought process behind it was they weren't finding bacteria, which they mistook as the cause for several other illnesses, but that's another topic. They weren't finding bacteria at the site of some of these illnesses. So they're like, ah, there must be a particle that's smaller than bacteria that is causing these issues. And so in John Franklin's Ender's paper, he also conducted a control experiment where he treated the culture with the exact same steps, except for he did not take a sample from a person who was sick with measles. And in this control, the exact same cytopathic effect occurred. And John Franklin Enders was quoted in his paper, and somehow we've all missed this, as saying that the unstained preparations could not be distinguished with confidence from the, quote, viruses isolated from measles. Essentially, what that means is in the preparation that did not have any possible source of a so-called measles virus present, the exact same cytopathic effect occurred, which then indicates that it's simply a result of the preparation process. So knowing that that was the establishment of modern virology, which then over time has altered to include the, the substances that I named earlier, it's that virologists are taught this procedure to isolate viruses. It's it's almost like an un, it goes without question that this is how we isolate viruses. We know this works, and they are able to produce um, a, a similar effect in almost every case. So it, because 
they have a repeatable and what they think is an observable process that works, they've just simply not been taught to question the foundational premise as, is it scientific? And is this actually producing viruses the way that I think it does? And of course, the answer to that is no, because when you compare the process against the scientific method and the rigor of the scientific method, it is fundamentally pseudoscientific because in order to be regarded as scientific, you need to adhere to the scientific method. In virology, in their foundational papers, they don't have a clearly identified independent variable that they can then vary and manipulate to see if it produces the dependent variable, the observed phenomenon, the effect. They, again, assume that there's an independent variable that presume caused the virus present in the fluids, add those fluids to several other confounding variables, and then take the byproduct of that. And then we'll, you know, expose it to an animal or something like that, or to another cell culture and say, ah, oh, it's, it's, this is causing a cytopathic effect, or it's causing this animal to be sick. This is proof of the virus. So I don't even remember what the initial question was, but it's essentially that, yeah, I remember now that virologists are not all in on it. At least they're not all aware that they're trying to manipulate and scheme and, and, um, you know, try to trick the world. That's not what's happening at all. They, they have been taught this procedure. They've been taught this is how we isolate viruses. And the overwhelming majority of virologists are simply doing what they're told. They're, quote, just following orders. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost as if there is kind of, you know, an original lie or an original kind of... Um Misinterpretation. Misinterpretation is a better yeah. word, yeah. And then everything's kind of built upon that. It's almost like there's a foundational layer there that's been corrupted. And then, yep. you know, before you know it, it's kind of all steered off into a certain direction. But the original yep. assumption needs to be revisited and then potentially all of those layers built on top and all of the, you know, your average kind of run-of-the-mill doctors, uh, you know, maybe that would all change if you resolved that initial misconception. Yes, exactly. And that's what we're attempting to do here. And the reason it's so important to do this is because... Every single thing that has happened the last three years and beyond, you could even like apply all of vaccinology is based on the existence of these submicroscopic pathogenic particles, right? That's the reason it's so important to tackle this issue. And what we see happening now is they're slowly allowing talk of this, this gain of function lab leak scenario into the mainstream. They're making it more mainstream to talk about it. I even know people who are on board with the vaccine and still on board with the vaccines uh, that are starting to talk about how this is a lab leaked virus. And they're allowing that uh, to be communicated in the mainstream now. And it's creating this false dilemma, this this false dialectic between uh, is the virus a virus that is a wild type virus or is it a virus that escaped from a lab? And the prevailing alternative perspective is that it's a virus that escaped from a lab, but that's a false dilemma. There's actually a third option that there is no proof of this virus whatsoever. Again, if they created a bioweapon in a lab, this is the worst fucking bioweapon ever because 75% of the deaths were in people age 65 and up. 50% of deaths were in people age 75 and up. 79% of hospitalizations were in overweight or obese people. 95% of deaths had an average of four comorbidities. And the second strongest risk factor for death was fear slash anxiety related disorders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you've done a good job there of explaining, you know, exactly why this is important because yeah, it just essentially kind of sits underneath everything else. You know, so many of these other things that we're bickering about and, you know, uh, in our kind of circles, um, we need to actually 
figure out this fundamental assumption before moving on. So yeah, that was actually going to be my next uh, question, which is why is the the virus debate important? So I'll uh, I'll set that one aside for now because you've done a really good job of that. So I know um, you had this organization, Health Freedom for Humanity, and it sounds like maybe that's kind of wrapped up now. I did start listening to um, one of your recent podcast episodes kind of explaining that, but um, I was going to ask you about kind of how that came about, but I guess maybe I should change that question to like, you know, how did it come about and, you know, why is it wrapped up and, uh, you know, just the story behind health freedom for humanity. Yeah. I think the, the longer explanation for this is in that podcast episode, which I, I'll just, you know, have you share in the show notes, I guess. Sure. But essentially health freedom for humanity, I saw amongst the health freedom movement, um, two organizations that were very, top-down traditional pyramidal structure where there's one guy at the top that everyone knows. And I saw a need to show that there's there's people from all walks of life, all races, religions, socioeconomic backgrounds, political affiliations that are all coming together around the belief that we have the right to choose what is best for our own health. And looking at ICANN with Dell Bigtree and Children's Health Defense with RFK, I was like, I'll be the guy who creates the organization where it's a bunch of us. And that's sort of what we did. And we exploded onto the scene in the beginning of 2021. We rapidly grew. We ended up having 22 state chapters, chapters in three countries, one of the top uh, health and fitness podcasts in the world for a sustained three-month period. We were ahead of like all of these health podcasts that I'd been looking up to forever. Aubrey Marcus, you know, Joseph Mercola, RFK's podcast, Sean Stevenson, which was very surreal. And essentially... Health Freedom for Humanity, we, you know, a situation occurred that was very detrimental to us where uh, our, my counterpart at the time, his his name's Jeff Weitzman, wrote a piece uh, on Robert Malone that was published in our newsletter. And that was a leadership failure on my part to not ensure that everything that's published in our newsletter was in line with what our organization is about. And I also want to be clear on this. I don't trust Robert Malone at all for various reasons, personally. But again, that's not what our organization was supposed to have been about. We were supposed to just be uniting people and yes, educating people on the topics. And I've always gone with the approach of there's no need to intact, attack any of these individuals. Rather, let's just attack the lies that they promote and let people decide for themselves, offer the perspective that opposes the stuff that they're propagating. And so Jeff wrote a piece on Robert Malone and, and, and of course, uh, misrepresented a lot of things about Robert Malone in that piece. And then Robert Malone found out about it and he wrote a piece against us. And at that point, um, he had just been on Joe Rogan. He was at the peak of his stature within the health freedom space. He had the most listened to Joe Rogan episode ever. And when he wrote a piece about our organization in his newsletter that was published to upwards of 200,000 people, um, our organization took a drastic, a really detrimental hit to our sustainability. And, uh, we, we, you know, our, our recurring donations went down by 82% overnight. We, our podcast listens went from 140 K a month and growing to 60 K a month. We had multiple board members resign. It was, it was a big ordeal. And then at that point we had already been censored and deleted from Instagram, deleted from PayPal, Venmo, deleted from, um, Twitter once, deleted from YouTube, deleted from Eventbrite, deleted from all these places. And the way we were able to grow was because of the people who were already supporting us. So when we lost a good chunk of our people and we didn't have the funds to continue, it sort of got to the point where we had no other choice but to wrap up. So 
that's the that's the short form story behind that. But people can find more by listening to the episode that I'll have you link in the show notes. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a uh, that's a shame to hear. But um, you know, I guess this is a kind of continuation of a theme for you, which is just kind of being generally censored, right? Because this was happening for you, I think, even before uh, you started that organization. Um, I know that you've said before that you're like the the champion at, at whack-a-mole when it comes to social media <laughs> censorship. Do you want to just uh, go into that story a little bit for my listeners? Yeah, man. So <clears throat> I'm on my eighth Instagram account. Uh, luckily, I was reinstated on Twitter. So I was saying before that I'm on my fourth Twitter account because I had been, you know, I'd make another account and then get deleted and make another account and a few months later get deleted. But I, my initial account that was deleted was reinstated, thank goodness. Um, but I've been deleted from YouTube. Uh, like I said, Eventbrite, the, the PayPal one was super sketchy. And that was before anyone was talking about the PayPal situation where they're going to start finding people 2,500 or whatever. Um, I was deleted like six months prior to that. And that happened. I was deleted personally. My organization, Health Freedom for Humanity was deleted from PayPal. And then also the way forward, my own personal business that I'm now carrying on with was deleted all at the same time from PayPal. But dude, I look at it as like, I, I wear it as a badge of honor and it just shows that I'm over the target on so many things. And I, I was, I was saying this a lot previously, and I still think this applies to some degree, um, that it's important for people to pay close attention to those who are not deleted and sort of ask questions about why they're not deleted. Why are these alternative voices being promoted and allowed to grow, whereas the, some of these other ones are being deleted at every turn? It's a little interesting, and I don't I don't have a definitive answer to why that is. And of course, any claim that I make about this is not going to apply across the board. But I noticed that a lot of people who are still promoting the idea of scary lab leak viruses are promoted all over the place. I noticed that people who are still playing into the left versus right paradigm instead of understanding the illusion of authority are promoted all over the place. I noticed people who are promoting very new AG. And, and I want to be careful on this because I, I do meditate and I do um, perceive the world as all as one being. But there's there's a lot of people who are promoting new age concepts that are right in line with the, the new world order and the World Economic Forum's agenda. And then a lot of people who are promoting belligerence and hostility towards the government rather than just saying, meh, I don't acknowledge them as a legitimate authority and I'm going to go over here and set up my own uh, community and we don't acknowledge your authority because that's all they require is our belief in their authority to maintain their legitimacy. Those who are promoting belligerence and hostility and attacking the other side and calling people sheep and things like this, they get to grow because that reinforces their narrative. So I think it's uh, it's important to pay close attention to the people who aren't deleted. And of course, there's some people who are just clever with their language and able to thwart censorship that way. Or some people who avoid discussing certain topics because they know that people like me get censored. Um, but it's still nonetheless important to sort of clue in on why are some of these voices being actively promoted while others are being censored. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, um, you know, you mentioned like a little bit there about, you know, government and, and authority and our, our belief in it, et cetera. This kind of reminds me of uh, some of the conversations that were occurring at the Greater Reset. Like that's kind of, you know, I guess we're both kind of fresh off the back of that now, uh, you know, having this conversation that I think 
I'm not sure if today's the last day or yesterday might have been the last day. I think today is like they're doing farm tours and stuff, at least in Texas. I think that's what they're doing. Okay, but, cool. Yeah. I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, where things are going really, you know, in terms of not just the greater reset, but in general and, you know, your thoughts on like how we're, how we should be moving forward here. Yeah. Um, this is a really, really good question. So <sighs> let me, let me tackle this from both a philosophical and physical reality that in such a way that is relevant to people who may not be spiritually inclined, but also people who are spiritually inclined. When we're so focused on what the World Economic Forum is doing, what the government is doing, and we're giving that our attention, we are we are in a frozen state where we're not taking action to create the reality that we want, like literally physically creating the reality that we want. And for those who, like me, believe that uh, the, the nefarious actors of the world, not only do they manipulate us into giving our consent, but they want those of us who are awake to be hyper-focused on what they're doing because they literally siphon our creative energy and help bring, they know that we co-create the reality that they are trying to create for us. And if we're so focused on what they're doing, we're actually perpetuating and bringing about that reality. And the other end of that argument is, or that position is that um, it can be very spiritually bypassy to just pretend none of those things are happening and just stuff them down, pretend that everything is all love and light, because that's not the case. We need to accept the reality as is. We need to know what they're doing, but we need to be focusing our attention and awareness and giving our energy to create the reality that we want to create. And I think the best analogy for this that I've heard is uh, it, it's it's kind of like there's a circus in town and a bunch of people keep on buying tickets to the circus. I've no longer purchased any tickets to the circus. I know what happens inside the circus. I, I'm aware of what the circus is doing. I hear stories about it. But if I can get other people to stop buying tickets to the circus too, then the circus will leave town. And think of the buying tickets as giving our energy towards something. Like we know what the government's doing. We know what the World Economic Forum is doing. We know the reality that they're trying to create. And we should probably be aware of it. But stop giving it our energy. Stop feeding into it. Stop believing that these other men and women who simply just call themselves government have any authority over us whatsoever because that's the only way they're able to continue and operate is because we buy into the illusion that they have legitimate authority over us. Imagine, I always use this example too, the Canadian trucker convoy, amazing show of unity, amazing um, at, at bringing awareness to this issue. But imagine if that 500,000 people, uh, instead of meeting together and saying, you have authority over me and I don't like that you have authority over me. Imagine if those 500,000 people all at the same time decided just to continue about their lives and doing what they were doing uh, none of this would have ever happened if all of us, if all of us who were, um, you know, authentically not wanting to comply and authentically not wanting to do any of this nonsense, instead of focusing our energy on like rebelling against the system and writing our congressmen and, you know, petitioning the government just simply said, nope, I'm not doing this. I'm just going to live my life the way that I want to. I'm not going to be belligerent. I'm not going to be hostile. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to treat others well but I'm going to live the way that I authentically want to live. None of this would have happened. 
And none of this will happen in the future if that's the approach that we take. Be aware of what they're trying to do, but use our creative energy to create something that we want, the life we want, and and to create the life we want for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and uh, you know, become the co-creators that we are. Nice. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So just tell us a little bit. So I know you've got um, your project, The Way Forward. I don't know too much about it apart from the podcast. So what's The Way Forward all about? Yeah. So we have a lot of things that we're working on behind the scenes. And essentially, I'll look back on this in two years and be able to say that The Way Forward is an educational platform for health, for freedom, and for consciousness. And it's essentially helping to drive people towards solutions in all those areas. Like we'll still cover some of these topics, like the true nature of vaccines, the pharmaceutical industry, and you know the harmful effects of millimeter wave technology. Again, because we need to be aware of those things. But more importantly, we're going to be the educational platform that leads people to solutions. And we have a membership platform that we're that we're building right now that we've already launched that is doing just that. We have a lot of. Um, you know, courses and exclusive podcast episodes. And we're frequently doing breathwork sessions, Kundalini yoga sessions, uh, Q and A's with various experts from, I say that term loosely experts that I want to interview from fields that I think are important, like biofield tuning or German new medicine. And, um, we're also in the middle of planning our first summit, uh, that is focused on specific topic and that is focused on terrain. And we will be doing summits pretty frequently focused on specific topics. Um, the next one that we'll plan after that will actually be focused on regenerative agriculture. And then we'll probably do another one focused on common law and voluntarism. Um, we'll be we doing these summits pretty frequently. And we also have already built into our membership and we're launching this piece publicly here soon, a uh, freedom and holistic health oriented business directory. And I know there's other ones that exist out there, but ours is distinct in that over 50 of the uh, 50% of the businesses that are already on our directory offer a discount specific to members of the way forward. So if you're a member of the way forward, you can print off your membership card. We have a membership card for on our membership dashboard you can print off your membership card and approach any of these businesses and they'll give you a discount on a product or service or whatever they offer. And for those businesses that do offer discounts to members of the way forward, we offer them an opportunity to be a part of our affiliate program. We send them advertising materials that they can post in their business so that people can join to become a member of the way forward from within their business and they receive affiliate commission off that. So it's like this feedback loop of support where we're driving people to these freedom and holistic health oriented businesses. Those businesses are driving people to become members of the way forwards and the members themselves get value at a number of businesses across uh, the world really at this point. We have businesses um, all over the world and uh, that also extends to online businesses. We have a membership market marketplace. And the intention is that we're creating a space where anyone who's a member of the way forward has access to the best possible deals they can get on a number of holistic health, consciousness, and freedom-oriented products, services, courses, and what have you. And where we've established a relationship with a lot of these, uh, these products and businesses where we aren't taking an affiliate commission. And because we're not taking an affiliate commission, they're increasing the discount percentage that they offer relative to where they typically offer discounts. So anyone who's a member of the way forward has access to the best possible deals. And we're constantly adding businesses to that marketplace as well. So really just trying to, to, to provide solutions for people so that we can, you know, embody the way forward for all of mankind. Yeah, nice, nice. And I, I really love, you know, and this is definitely something that 
I mean, I kind of already knew that it was that it was going on a bit, but certainly after going to the greater reset, just seeing actually kind of how strong this movement is, is this movement of like kind of voluntarism tied with like a real holistic approach to life um, and, and looking at like holistic solutions. Because I think that, you know, there is, there is almost these two kind of movements that are happening at the same time. And one of them I think is somewhat of a dead end, which is this kind of like alt-right, you know, we just need to get, um, you know, Trump in or we need to get DeSantis in and, you know, kind of yeah. like still focusing somewhat on political <laughs> solutions or, yeah. you know, even even the anti-woke stuff, you know, like I, I'm no fan of the woke stuff myself, but focusing all your energy on the anti-woke stuff and, you know, trying to, you know, fighting, uh, you know, thinking that, for instance, the, I don't know, the, the, the trans thing is the biggest issue of the time. Whereas I think like, I think that the biggest issue of the time or something that I think that we should certainly be putting most of our effort and energies into is actually like elevating beyond all of that stuff, like yeah. building like totally new systems, like opting out of all the bullshit, not just trying to kind of fight and have these petty fights with, you know, some of these status things, but just saying, I'm I'm done with the whole thing. Let's like move on. Let's, you know, find our people, you know, yeah, who man. we kind of like vibe yeah. with and who have similar ideas and like, let's build something new. And, you know, it sounds like you're doing that with the way forward. Certainly Derek, uh, you know, and John Bush, they're doing it with the greater reset. I, I think there's something here, you know, like I really feel, yeah, um, I feel kind of pumped coming away from the event and I just kind of feel pumped generally about like where things are going with the, with this, this holistic kind of, you know, voluntarist uh, movement that's going on. Yep. And I think it has to be a, a holistic embodiment of all of those things. It can't be voluntarism absent of an understanding of the true nature of health and how we can be well. It can't be health without an understanding of voluntarism. It can't be consciousness without an understanding of both those two things. So I've sort of come to the conclusion that it has to be embodiment of consciousness, of health, and of true freedom-oriented principles. And I think that what we're trying to create the way forward is show mankind the way forward with all of those things as one total package solution. Awesome, man. Um, yeah, this has been great. I'm so glad that we, we kind of had this conversation. I hope that we'll have another one, you know, at some point down the line because, you know, that you're obviously kind of involved in so much stuff and I'm sure that things will move on a lot. And, you know, I, I, I'm kind of, yeah, I feel like optimistic about, you know, just people kind of focusing on stuff that's, you know, trying to get the truth out there and, you know, it's all in a decentralized way and stuff. And, you know, you're very much a, a part of that. So thanks for kind of giving me the time. I just want to give you the opportunity as well to just, uh, before we wrap up, like share where people can find you, how they can get in touch, how they can find out about your organization. And then just like any final thoughts you've got, uh, for my listeners. Yeah. So you can find me at the wayforward.com and forward for the website is spelled F W R D. So the way fwrd.com and you can find my podcast it's the way forward with alex Zek. in this case forward is spelled correctly the way forward with alex Zek on any podcast streaming platform and uh man i i think my main message i just interviewed this guy named vinnie tolman who had what is called an after-death experience it's a small subset subset of the near-death experience community and uh you know, it's for those who are legally pronounced dead. He was zipped up in a body bag, no pulse, no breath, body going into rigor mortis, um, completely cold to the touch, muscles already stiffening. And then he was subsequently revived. And the whole story is incredible, but he ventured into the afterlife and his experience in the afterlife, he was taught 10 principles. And the first principle that he was taught about how to live uh, an embodied life, both on the earth and also after this life is authenticity. 
And when he said that, I got so excited because that's been one of my main messages over this past three years is the need for people to be authentic. And I think a lot of people are struggling to know what they even truly want, who they truly are, what they truly believe, because we've been so conditioned to outsource all of that stuff to what someone else thinks is best for us. And that's perpetuating all this nonsense. If we really get in touch with who we authentically are as individuals, even if you come to a different perspective than me, good, great. Did you form that perspective on your own? Awesome. That's what's most important is that we embody our authentic perspective and share our authentic perspective without fear of what other people will think and without fear of what other you know, so-called leaders and authority figures will do to us. I think that is how we move forward in all this nonsense. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, brother.